0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Priya Fielding Singh, who is the author of How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America, new out from Little Brown. So Priya, if you would start us off by telling us a little bit about you and what it is that brought you to this book.
1: So I'm a sociologist by training, and I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Consumer Studies at the University of Utah. And I was really drawn to this topic of food and inequality um, because when I was a graduate student uh, doing my PhD in sociology, I was interested in studying something that I saw as both an outcome of inequality, but also a driver of inequality. Um, So the food that we eat is very much a product of our social class, our race, the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we attend, the resources that we have. But the food that we eat also fundamentally drives really important outcomes for us, including our educational success, our health and well-being. And so I was interested in food as both a symptom, but also a force. And that really brought me to the topic and, and compelled me to do a lot of the research that's really underpinning the book, trying to understand the drivers of people's food choices across society. Um, in particular, I focus on families' food choices and how those food choices are the same or are really different depending on the means and privileges that families have um, and also what the impact of those food choices are on families' uh, well-being.
0: So in order to get there, you you interview uh, 160 families and then four of those uh, you conduct much more in-depth uh, research with. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those four families, if you would?
1: Absolutely. So the four families were um, all families that I had conducted an interview with in an early uh, part of the study. And I chose these four families because... They lived such incredibly different lives. Um, so, uh, the four families are Naya. Uh, so, so the time that sorry, I am actually going to go back and, and rephrase this. Sure. Um, so I, <laughs> so in my work, I really focus on. Um, I ended up focusing a lot on mothers and the work that mothers do around feeding families, and so. The book is about four families, but it's also really about four mothers who are trying to get their kids fed. And you know, on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum is a mom named Naya, who is a Black single mother who is living really well below the poverty line, depends on a lot of uh, federal assistance in order to make ends meet. Um, right above the poverty line is the next mother that I spent time with, Dana, who is you know what we would consider to be a member of the working poor. She's she's also a single uh, mom. She's white. She has two daughters, and she is working a full time job and is you know making just enough money to not qualify for any benefits, but is is really living in many ways hand to mouth. Uh, right above her, Renata, a married Latina mother of two, very solidly in the middle class, a, a two income. Um, household. And then at the top end of the socioeconomic spectrum, Julie, uh, a married white mother who's also a stay at home mom, um, who has, you know, just far and away s- so many more resources than the other families. And I chose these mothers because um, the circumstances within which they were making choices about food, thinking about their children's diets and well being were just so dramatically different that I wanted to understand what food meant to each of them and how these dietary choices played out in their everyday lives.
0: So perfect. So maybe before we talk about the the differences among those families, and maybe for the purposes of the conversation, we'll we'll maybe focus on Naya and Julie as as bookends of those experiences. But before mm-hmm. I ask you to help us think through what's different, um, tell us what you found to be the same generally across how those mothers and 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 you you discover to, I suspect, unfortunately no one's surprised, that most of the work and most of the intellectual work and emotional work around food is being done, uh, by mothers rather than fathers in these households. But, but what, what is, what do these mothers have in common in the way in which they think about feeding their children?
1: A few really big similarities stood out as I was doing the research. So first, um, pretty much every mother that I met, uh, whether she was living, uh, on the street or living in a home that she owned, uh, almost every mother really cared about her kids' diets um, and connected the dots between a healthy diet and a healthy child. Um, and in the broadest strokes, mothers really agreed. This, this was something that surprised me, actually. They really agreed upon what made a diet healthy. Um, so, of course, there was some variation and, you know, certain food groups that that made or didn't make the list but for the most part moms agreed that fruits and vegetables were healthy choices for their kids whole grains, lean meats um, and that things like soda chips, candy fast food that these were not healthy choices for their children so this really stood out to me because it contradicts this narrative that we sometimes have in society that, in particular low income moms don't know what a healthy diet is they're right. they're not educated about what a healthy diet is and i can't overstate how incorrect that assumption is yeah. the other thing that stood out was that you know processed foods foods that had a good amount of sodium and sugar were common across families diets so again we might have this image that high income families are eating extremely nutritiously, low income families are eating um, mostly processed foods. And of course, there is a nutritional gap between rich and poor. And that nutritional gap was actually part of what motivated my, uh, my research and and this book. Um, But processed foods are a part of all families diets, there's no family in this country that escapes The grasp of the food and beverage industry that markets unhealthy products to families and to children in particular. And all mothers I met were really struggling with that and felt frustrated by that and were working to both attempt to feed their kids healthy, nutritious foods, while also navigating the fact that their kids often wanted less healthy foods that were advertised to them. and that these foods were often cheaper options, more convenient options, and um, also options that were engineered to be delicious. Yeah,
0: you talk about this as as the challenges of of navigating a toxic U.S. food environment. Can you talk to us a little bit about how does this play out differently in different households, depending on the resources that they have available, that kind of that navigation of those less healthy choices?
1: I found that in almost every family that I interviewed and that I spent time with, uh, kids were asking parents, but often they were focusing on asking mothers uh, for less healthy foods. All the kids
0: want the same stuff, right? (laughs)
1: Exactly. The drive
0: through (laughs) and the pizza and the burgers and the chips, right?
1: That desire is in many ways (laughs) universal. Um, And that's by design. The, The food industry spends billions of dollars every year to cultivate in children a desire for less healthy foods, to make that food really appealing to them, to put it everywhere, to make it really kid friendly. And so the result is um, that, that those campaigns are incredibly successful and kids are always asking their parents for these less healthy foods. But I found that the really different contexts within which mothers were raising their children shaped what those food requests meant to moms and how they responded to them. So during my interviews, something that really stood out to me was I would ask mothers about how they navigated these junk food requests. And it became very clear that that navigation was very classed, um, where higher income moms were trying as often as they could to say no to those requests, to deny their children those requests, whereas low income moms were working as much as they could to say yes to those requests, to oblige them when they had the money. And in the book, I talk about how these really different responses are a product of um, very different contexts. And for low-income moms in particular, moms like Naya and Dana, um, parenting their children in poverty required saying no to their kids a lot. Like in order to make ends meet, to pay the rent, to put gas in the tank, they had to say no to their kids' requests for things like jeans and you know replacement for a shattered phone screen or a weekend trip. And saying no all the time was really emotionally distressing for mothers. It was really upsetting. It made them feel less than and guilty like they couldn't provide for their kids. But in this context of no, cheap junk food was one of the few things that moms could almost always say yes to. Like they could almost always find a buck at the bottom of their purse or overturn a sofa cushion and find a few coins that could go towards a can of Dr. Pepper or a bag of Cheetos. And so these moms would work actually to say yes to these requests, knowing full well that these were not healthy choices, knowing that in an ideal world, they would not want their kids eating Cheetos all the time. Um, For these moms, food was one of the few means that they had to show their kids that they love them that they heard them, and that they could give them not just what they needed to survive, but also what they wanted, you know, what they could honor kids preferences. And so that really drove that kind of navigation at the bottom end of the income spectrum. And for higher income moms like Julie, you know, they really parented in a world of yes, in a world where they could say yes to so many things, both implicitly and explicitly, like implicitly with, the schools that they sent their kids to or the neighborhoods that they raised their children in and explicitly like they could buy that pair of jeans or replace that shattered phone screen. And so for them saying no to their kids about junk food wasn't as emotionally distressing. They didn't worry that their kids were going without. And so the ability to say yes really drove the fact that they said no as often as they could to these junk food requests.
0: One of the one of the many things that that struck me about these sections of the the books is that you point you point out the cultural context in which these different mothers inhabit and that that you know julia uh, uh, an affluent white woman does not walk through the world facing regular judgment about her parenting behavior whereas Naya is very much likely to to be defensive, right? To sense that she is being judged in 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 that behavior and that that also affects the ways in which they think about the relationship they have with their children and those food choices. What else sort of struck you about just sort of thinking about those larger contexts and and what it meant to how those mothers are navigating those choices
1: in the book? I talk a lot about a term that sociologists use all the time, which is um, the ideology of intensive mothering. And the ideology of intensive mothering really refers to a set of beliefs that are widely spread and deeply held in American society about what makes women good mothers. And these are standards that are um, extremely high. They uh, demand The highest level of devotion and self sacrifice. Um, In this country, we think that good moms are extremely child centered. They are, as I mentioned, self sacrificing. They are uh, labor intensive. They are expert guided. They put their kids first no matter what. Um, And in our country, we also uh, view good moms as being generally affluent. White, uh, married, uh, stay-at-home caregivers, and you know, in many ways, that's who Julie was. Even though Julie was continually striving to be a good mom and and sometimes felt like she was falling short and felt guilty, um, Julie was kind of the most. She had the most privilege of any of the mothers that I met, and she never worried about. Um, a lot of the things that moms like Naya worried about, like the way that Naya lived her life, she knew that she was not society's definition of a good mom because of the color of her skin and the lack of wedding ring on her finger. And so for Naya, in fact, in, in an almost kind of surprising way, giving her kids junk food and making sure that they had some of what they needed and that they were full and that they were happy. That was Naya's way of showing her commitment to intensive mothering and to being a good mom. Like Naya knew that she didn't have so much of what it would take to be an ideal mother in this country, but she had some things. She had Every so often, some extra cash she could put towards her kids. Um, She had time she could spend on her children. And so Naya used the resources, scarce as they were, that she had to show her commitment to her children and to show to herself and to others that she was a
0: good mom. And also, of course, recognize that it brought joy to the kids and that made her happy too, right?
1: Absolutely, it's both about the kids' happiness and about a feeling of maternal self-worth right
0: so you talked earlier about about what what may surprise some people and that 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 there wasn't a whole lot of evident difference in people's actual knowledge about what so-called healthy choices would look like. There are another couple of things you point to that I think are even more common in discussion and debate about poverty and obesity and food choices, particularly among low-income households. One is that, well, part of the problem we've got here is food deserts. There's simply difficulty in accessing healthy nutrition food among low-income households. And the other is that price is also a barrier. Can you talk about what you found along those two dimensions?
1: So I think that the most prevailing narrative that we have in this country is that food deserts And differences in food access, geographic food access, are responsible for nutritional disparities. And when I was beginning this work, uh, that was accepted within the public health field as the reason. And as I was conducting my work, mounting research was accumulating in other fields like economics and medicine, showing that geographic food access promising of an explanation as that may be actually doesn't account for much of the nutritional gap. In fact, a recent study um, from 2019, like using people's supermarket purchases across neighborhoods estimated that just about 10% of the nutritional gap can be explained by differences in food access. And in my work What I found was that while mothers across the income spectrum told me all kinds of challenges when it came to feeding their kids, geographically accessing the food that they wanted or needed wasn't one of those challenges. And and there's a few reasons for that. And these reasons are actually pretty generalizable across the country. So one of the biggest reasons is that in America, an extremely car-centric nation most people, including low-income individuals and including residents of food deserts, have access to a privately owned vehicle. And this makes sense, given you know what we've seen happening in cities. People are pushed um, into areas that might not be close to where they work. Many people commute with a car. And yep. so the metric that we've used to look at food deserts, which is basically living within a mile of a supermarket, isn't necessarily that meaningful if people are driving a lot. And, and what we know is that 90% of supermarket trips in this country are made by car. And that includes people who live in food deserts. And so we've thought about food access as the big barrier, but it turns out that food access um, is actually not the primary barrier. And we've, we've seen this since we've opened supermarkets and food deserts and found that um, doing so does very little, if anything, to improve residents' diets. And so, in the book, I, I shed some light on why it's not food access, and use that kind of pair that with broader studies and research we have showing that indeed food access is not the the reason that we put all of our you know we put all of our hopes in it, but it actually has not turned out to be the primary cause. And price is definitely a more promising explanation. Um, to be sure. Low income families spend less money on food than higher income families, um, though they do spend more of their income on food than higher income families. Um, a lot of foods on a purely calorie basis, um, unhealthy foods are less expensive than healthy foods. And so there's a strong incentive, especially if you're living in a food insecure household, if you're living really close to the bone to buy less healthy um, but cheaper foods rather than healthier, more expensive foods. But as I show in the book, and as I've talked a little bit about today, what I also found was that um, price wasn't the sole determinant for low-income families either. Um, low-income moms told me that they would often spend more money than they had originally planned on, or wanted to, or or could even afford to, in order to buy their kids the foods that they wanted, and so. It became really clear to me that, in addition to affordability and price constraints, children's desires and happiness and these family dynamics also play a really powerful role in shaping the way that families eat, and in doing so they they have really important implications for diet disparities across society
0: and as you point out, uh, uh, cooking fresh food and vegetables from a supermarket requires Energy and requires time. Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, things that might be in in much shorter supply in low income household. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which that that helps us understand what's going on in different kinds of households?
1: So time scarcity was a challenge uh, in many households that I spent time with. Um, you know, in low income households, parents were often working multiple jobs. Um, they were. Um, really busy, didn't always have a ton of time to spend with their children. But time scarcity was an issue up and down the income spectrum. There were many wealthy parents who I met who also worked incredible hours and had very little time um, to spend with their kids too. But what I found was that in the face of time scarcity, money could be an incredible buffer for families and could really allow them to still... Feed their kids the way that they wanted, and that was obviously inequitably distributed. So I talked to higher income families who um, had hired, you know, cooks to come and prep food at home for them, or you know, they would stop by Whole Foods and pick up, um, you know, a ton of food from the hot bar, and um, having the ability to kind of compensate for time scarcity with money really made the difference between a less healthy meal and a healthier meal or a home cooked meal. Um, and so I, I kind of problematize how we're thinking about time scarcity and, and why that matters. The the other thing that I talk about is when we talk about time, we think about it obviously in very quantitative terms, like how many minutes we have and how many hours we have, but we don't often talk about the quality of the time and how parents want to spend their time. And I found that for moms who were out of the house all day, who maybe had a half hour with their children in the evening, sometimes they didn't want to spend that time cooking, you know, being in the kitchen by themselves, uh, preparing food, continuing to do more work while their kids were out in the other room. And maybe, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, couldn't your kids come cook with you? But kids were also busy doing homework, or they wanted some downtime. And so, Moms often sacrifice that time cooking so that they could spend it with their kids, whether it was doing something like helping them with homework or just sitting beside them and watching some TV. Um, there's kind of this assumption in this country that everyone should want to cook and that's how people should use their time. But I found that that's a kind of problematic idea because... Um, some people may not enjoy cooking or want to cook, or they may not find that after an extremely busy and hectic and stressful day, that they want to stand on their feet and prepare a meal. And so that's something that I found was really, you know, widespread across families, but, but for families that had money, they could use that money to find other solutions that, that allowed them to still deliver nutritious meals to their kids.
0: And and things that to an outside observer watching the behavior of a low-income family that might look irresponsible, when you actually see what's going on in those households, it's like, oh, no, this is evidence of the behavior of this mother with extraordinarily constrained resources looking for ways to effectively care for her family.
1: That's exactly right. And I think you've just hit on a major point of the book, which is to take these behaviors that are really easily cast as lazy or negligent and to put them into a really rich context so that they make sense. (laughs) Um, If you spend time with a mom who is standing on her feet all day as a cashier and then works as a server and comes back after a 10-hour day completely exhausted, the heels of her feet sore and bruised, it's really difficult to then make the assumption that she should go stand in the kitchen and prepare a meal. But when you abstract out her work life, you know the broader context of the conditions that she's living and working in, then sure, it can seem really lazy. And so the point of, of my book is really to provide that context so that these seemingly irrational or irresponsible decisions actually reveal themselves as, as rational and as, as choices we might all make in those positions.
0: So as we work our way toward concluding our conversation, Priya, um, and we are speaking with Priya Fielding Singh, author of How the Other Half Eats, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see by way of solutions. What are the things that we could do as a matter of of policy that would loosen some of these constraints, particularly in lower income households?
1: I think about solutions from kind of two angles. Um, mm-hmm. One is improvements to the social safety net and the other is reforms around the food system. And I think these solutions have to really work in tandem and, and I'll explain a little bit why. So, you know, as a baseline thing that we need to do as a country is we need to decide what an acceptable minimum standard of living for a family is. Um, many of the families that I met were living in in you know so deep in the hole that it seems unconscionable as a country that we would allow for families and for children to um be in such dire financial circumstances and i think the fact that um for these mothers uh, a bag of cheetos was one of the few things that they had to give their kids to show them that they loved and cared for them. That kind of tells you everything about those mothers' economic conditions. And I think of it really as, as a moral failing. And we have the solutions to fix it. Like a lot of these things, we don't think about them as food policies per se, things like establishing a livable wage and expanding access to childcare and creating affordable housing for communities. Those things don't, seem related to food, but they actually have everything to do with food. Because if you elevate families out of poverty, if you give them some degree of financial security and stability, then you actually fundamentally shift the meaning that food plays in their lives. And you make it so that a bag of Cheetos isn't the only thing that a mom can give her child. And if that's the case, then that has just, really profound implications for how families are going to eat and how moms are going to approach feeding their children and responding to their kids' requests. And so I think of the social safety net expansions and the elevation of families out of poverty as sort of a necessary starting point. Um, But that also won't go far enough because we have a food industry that is extremely predatory and powerful and targets children, particularly low-income kids, Black and Latinx kids, so kids who we already know bear the harms of um, of less healthy diets to start. And so banning marketing to children under 13, really, really regulating marketing of food and drink, something that we see happening in other countries across the globe, um, really reining in the food industry and deciding that this is A public health crisis that needs to be managed that can't just be, um, you know, it can't just be about companies' profits. It has to be about families' health and well being. And so I think about reforms to the food and beverage industry as necessary um, to be paired with these social safety net reforms that would then give families really a chance to feed their kids what they want versus what corporations are pushing on them or what their circumstances are demanding that they do in order to show their kids love.
0: You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we've been speaking with Priya Fielding Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats, the untold story of food and inequality in America. Priya, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.